none of us live in a vacuum. We influence and are influenced by the society we live within, social, political, spiritual factors from our cultural climate. They affect our sense of security and well-being. In the last week, fault lines in international relations have been exposed, especially in relation to Syria, as we've had prayed. Innocent people have been caught up in indiscriminate attacks, some allegedly with chemical weapons. Missiles have been fired by British, French, and U.S. military forces, attempting to send a signal that it's never okay to use chemical weapons or other weapons of mass destruction, especially on fellow citizens, your neighbors. Now, I'm not able to discern with my limited knowledge what a righteous use of power in this situation might look like, but I know that it's not right or righteous to do nothing when innocent lives are at stake. I read an extract from uh, Samara, who heads up the founder of the Samara's Aid Appeal, which was our Easter offering this year. Seems um, quite interesting uh, that it is, and actually we've not stopped collecting, but, but she writes this. This is another perspective from the ground. These are dark days for the people in Syria who were hoping that the situation would start to calm down. But instead, hope has been replaced by fear and apprehension. All that the people in Syria can do now is helplessly watch the news while more powerful nations hurl insults and threats at each other. It's like watching a disturbing TV reality show where the losers are the poorest, the most vulnerable and the people who've already suffered years of abuse, neglect, and violence. The losers pay with their blood and the blood of their children. While we consider what our response might be, maybe we can join with the prayer published by the Archbishop of Canterbury yesterday in all this complexity. He prays this, you're welcome to do aloud, amen. Lord of all power and might, wisdom and love, you gave your only son to live with the suffering and poor, to die for our sins and to rise from the dead that we may live. In your hands, justice is perfect and mercy and righteousness meet. We pray for all caught up in the war in Syria, for the innocents who are poisoned by its weapons and bereaved or wounded by its violence, for those serving in our armed forces, for those who make decisions and order actions. Be merciful to the people of Syria. Bring justice in their suffering. And let new life arise where there is now destruction and fear. We pray these prayers in the name of your risen Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.
A slight change of gear. Today we begin a new sermon series. We cast our minds back almost 2,000 years to Philippi. If you've got Bibles, I'm going to be referring to Acts 16, um, and I haven't got a page number, but also Philippians 1. In Philippians 1, the Apostle Paul is giving thanks and praying for his partners in the gospel that their love would abound, their knowledge increase, and their purity of life be evident in readiness for what? To meet Christ face to face. Philippi is a Roman colony, Rome in miniature, with Roman citizens enjoying great privilege. That was going to be to Paul's advantage a little bit later on. It's a place of commercial and strategic importance, a main trading route that bridged Europe and Asia. Philippi had a mix of people groups, a mix of religions, Roman gods and Egyptian gods, and there was Jewish worshippers, and they all had influence. The call, of the, the call of the Apostle Paul and Silas to Philippi was an unusual one. So you've got your Bibles, Acts 16, 6, we're told and reading forward from there that Paul and his companions were prevented by the Holy Spirit from taking the gospel into Asia but instead see a vision of a man begging him, come to Macedonia and help us. Now, I'm not claiming to have had a similar vision to come to Claygate, but I'm here anyway. Paul's intervention in Philippi was a peaceful one, but he put himself in harm's way. It was a call to preach the gospel in word and deed. I'm hoping the locals are a little bit more friendly in Claygate. He was strategic in his gospel mission. Often first visiting the synagogue, but here it seems as though he went for the next best thing, Acts 16, 13, by the river to a place of prayer where he found Lydia, a God-fearer. She was a non-Jew, and um, she was a trader. Any traders in here trading purple cloth, fine purple cloth. Um, we read in Acts sixteen fourteen that the Lord opened Lydia's heart to Paul's message. God is the main player. Lydia becomes the first European convert to Christianity that we know about and therefore begins or starts to form the first European church on the foundation of prayer. Then we read that her and her whole household were baptized. And incidentally, there's still water in here. If you haven't been baptized, I don't mind delaying the uh, 1115 service to put that right. She offers Paul and his fellow travelers hospitality. Now, the gift of hospitality is something that is evident in this church, and it is often a catalyst for spreading the gospel and growing the church. So I encourage you in that. Paul and Silas, um, their call to Philippi caused spiritual conflict. Some would say spiritual warfare. They were tracked by a fortune-telling slave girl who became a little bit of a pest and a hindrance uh, to them sharing the gospel. Uh, she was earning her uh, slave owners a lot of cash, but the Apostle Paul uh, dealt with a demon that oppressed her, and as a result, she lost her fortune-telling powers 
and a lot of income. As a result, uh, Acts um, 6.22, um, Paul was handed over, stripped and beaten, so was Silas, and they were flung into prison. And we haven't got time to sort of go into too much detail there, but um, I would have liked to have been at that midnight prayer meeting, probably outside the bars rather than within them, but we're told it was an earthquake and uh, the prison gates and their chains were flung off and uh, that um, the prison, prison officer that was looking after them um, yeah, that was a really bad thing for him and his well-being. So he thought he'd save everyone the trouble and kill himself. But he was stopped from doing so because if you don't look after prisons that you've been put under your care, uh, you often would lose your life, I understand. But um, um, Paul says, verse 28, don't harm yourself. We're all here. And trembling um, with um, Acts 16.30 the jailer says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And if anyone's in any doubt, it's uh, verse 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your whole household. And again, interesting here that he was, he was baptized and his whole household. They came as a bit of a job lot. Uh, they filled with joy and again they offered hospitality. Now, the imprisonment theme seems to be a bit of an ongoing thing for the Apostle Paul. And um, he could be imprisoned and unjustly, but the gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ living with him within him couldn't be imprisoned and seemed remarkably not to be able to affect his attitude. It doesn't take very much for me to be miserable, being beaten, and locked up, I don't know, I'd have caved in long before the Apostle Paul. But we read time and time again, he's not so concerned about his well-being. He's concerned about the furtherance of the gospel. The letter to the Philippians um, is written for a few reasons. Here's some of them. To thank them for their prayer and practical support, some with finance. To encourage them that he was okay even though he's in prison, and to make sure that they stand firm in the gospel, in the faith, on sound teaching. And um, they're to settle differences. I think there was differences in the early church from time to time. Not as bad here in other places, but that wasn't on. Paul's love, his pastor heart uh, for the Philippians, defies the circumstances. So we're in Philippians 1, verse 7 now. He writes, I have you in my heart, and whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in, in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to explore the Philippians passage under three broad headings. The first is the thanks, under thanks and joy for the partnership in the gospel. The second, uh, the wondrous assurance of God, and you might have heard these words before, I've started so I'll finish. And thirdly, and uh, Paul's, Paul's heartfelt prayer for the Philippians. So firstly, thanks and joy for the partnership in the gospel. In Philippians um, chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, Paul prays for them with 
joy and thanks, remembering their partnership in the gospel. The gospel is the teaching and revelation about Jesus. The gospel summed up for me, you might find other places in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 4, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised and on the third, and on the third day according to, and was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And we capture some of these ideas in the baptism service. We've um, already said that we repent of the sins that separate us from God and neighbor and that we proclaim that Jesus is our Lord and Savior. The gospel calls us to bring godly transformation to our communities and wider society. What does it mean to you to be a partner in the gospel? So I'm aware I've chucked quite a lot at you so far. But when you think about partnership, what are you thinking about? What does it look like in everyday life? And what should it look like when it comes to the gospel? There might be a few partners out there. So um, I think it's an arrangement where partners agree to cooperate to advance their mutual interests, their mission. And I think you can often achieve more together than you can alone. Partnerships don't work well um, if we don't share the same values or goals. The sort of partnership that Paul is talking about here is close fellowship. Now, the Greek word used to describe this, and you won't get very many Greek words out of me, um, is koinonia. Has anyone heard that one before? Koinonia. Okay. So I wouldn't have known that. Okay. So don't think I'm intelligent. Koinonia describes a costly partnership, a relationship of giving and receiving. Koinonia refers to an intimate spiritual communion rooted in faith. Koinonia is participative with a God-shaped and directed commitment. Koinonia speaks of the union of believers with the Apostle Paul bound together by God's love for them and their love for one another, an eternal covenant of love. Paul's call and passion is to spread the gospel in partnership with others who share the gospel imperative to make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching them the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Building God's church and participating in his mission shouldn't be a solo enterprise. We need each other. It works much more effectively when we do this in partnership with others. As a church, we give thanks for the many valuable Christian mission partners we have within and beyond the church. I just want to pause for a few moments. Who are they? You don't have to answer out loud. But who are these valuable mission partners? who we're in it together with. Well, I haven't got an extensive list, and I apologize if I miss a few. 
But it's not just these. It's anyone that we're in partnership with. It's Christian Solidarity Worldwide. It's Tear Fund. It's the Ukraine Mission. It's CPS, Hope Gardens, Beeson, Faith in Action, Hunslet, the Jonas Center, the Charles family. And today, I've already mentioned the Samara's Aid Appeal. We also give thanks for those we work with in our local community. And I can see some of you who are involved in that. The Claygate Youth Club, who helps with that here? Bless you. That's a gospel partnership of a different kind. We have to be quite careful about how we speak about the gospel. But your actions speak louder than words. And then there's the vital, vital witness of all in their daily lives. Those of you that offer hospitality, maybe in the hospitality business. Those who clean and care for others. Those involved in education, in finance, insurance, public service, administration, healthcare, retail, IT, etc., etc., etc. Those of you who in practical ways are trying to work out what it means to love your neighbor in prayer and in action. Verse 3 and 4. I thank my God, this is the Apostle Paul, every time I remember you in all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. Is that stirred in us when we think about the myriad of things that folks are involved in every day of their lives? My second heading, I've started, so I'll finish. Uh, You'll be able to tell me who said that time and time and time again. Have any of you been on Mastermind? No! No! I'd have thought loads of people would have been on Mastermind in Holy Trinity Claygate. Well, I've never been on Mastermind. It might surprise you, but I've never been on that. I'm not sure how many questions I've ever been able to answer either. I might have got one or two. Um, But um, this isn't really about um, asking questions, this passage. God has started and he'll finish. He's all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving The wonderful news for the Christian is the God who's begun a good work in you, in us, will continue till it's completed. He'll not give up on us. I get fed up with hearing so, so many Christians with the sort of whole woe is me thing, and they've messed up, sometimes really, really badly, and they think it's a little bit, is it baseball where there's sort of three strikes and you're out? But we have a theology of not just three strikes and you're out, but some of us think that it's just one strike and you're out. Well, God's a lot bigger than that, and his love's a lot bigger than that. And he promises that because he's begun a good work in you, if you mess up or not, and he doesn't want you to, but he's going to carry it on to completion. What's um, true for individuals must also be true for church communities. Yes, we all have some setbacks on the way, but God is committed to presenting his church as a spotless bride and us in holiness and purity. 
My task as I respond to God's call to serve as vicar here, firstly was to prayerfully listen to your story, the work that God has already been doing in Holy Trinity Claygate, and try and join in. I think we'd all do well from time to time to look back and identify those situations where we think God's been particularly at work. You might have been involved in um, serving in a particular way. You might have been involved in, say, an alpha group and someone's come to faith. I remember in um, my previous church, um, this is a radical way to get a parish administrator, but we had someone coming to our church and our parent and toddler group with her baby, and she started asking more and more questions about faith, and she signed up to do the alpha course, and we couldn't get anyone else to do the alpha course. And I said to her, we'll do the Alpha course exclusively for you. Well, a few other people did um, join that particular Alpha course. And Alice did come to faith. And God began a good work in her in such a way that she was brave enough to come and apply to be our parish administrator. Uh, Louise has been brave enough uh, to do that. She starts work tomorrow. She's over there um, to be the vicar's assistant. But um, as I look back in Alice's life, God has started a work, and I pray that it would go on to completion. I can think of loads and loads and loads and loads of examples of God doing just this. We just forget, and we need to remember, and we need to celebrate that it's his work, and we don't have to do much. We do have to do a little bit. Then to look forward and be attentive to where God might be leading us. What are we being prevented from doing? What doors are opening for us in the gospel? Be assured that we take the gospel with us wherever we go. We recognize that we're a work in progress. God has started and will finish the job. In the meantime, Let's pray that whatever is good and godly in our lives will be even more evident and have an even greater impact. And the third area of exploration, Paul's heartfelt prayer. Our prayers are often fueled by our passions and our longings. I'm more likely to be praying fervently and if I'm in a good relationship with the Lord and realize afresh that he loves me maybe it's the same with you but what do you long for in Holy Trinity Claygate at one of I think it was at my first PCC meeting I asked the PCC what their prayer their longing was I think I might have even framed it and this is quite radical if this was your dying prayer for Holy Trinity Claygate what would it be the vast majority of people on the PCC are praying prayers for mission and expansion, the extension of the gospel, the longing for more and more people to believe, the desire, I suppose, that we transform our society. Paul prays this, Philippians 1, 9 and 10. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more, so it's limitless, in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. Paul's praying 
for an ever-increasing knowledge and discernment. This isn't general knowledge, I'm so clever. This is knowledge about God and his ways, a discernment to see things as God sees them. Um, I went into the parish office, I think it was not this Friday, but the Friday before, and I was talking to Catherine about this. And um, she gave me an example in French. Have you got any French speakers here? Um, I wasn't very good at French. I think I got a CSE. Okay, so this was sort of challenging me. She said in French, there's something about knowing, um, and it has a couple of different expressions. There's two words. Can anyone tell me what they are? Savoir and connaître. Does anyone understand that? So, savoir is knowing about stuff and connaître is about a relationship. And actually, we can know a lot of stuff about the gospel, but it ain't going to do you any good at all unless there is connectra, unless there is a knowing which born out of relationship. Paul, in effect, is praying that they have an ever-increasing interior and exterior knowing of who Jesus is, and that that will translate in their lives, and that their hearts will be renewed. Just a few thoughts to to conclude. Where do we position ourselves in relation to our partnership with Jesus and his gospel? Where do we position ourselves? If we could get Jesus to be present, here, or maybe a little bit scary, the Apostle Paul, um, who's intent on going on mission to be present here. I just wonder where we might position ourselves. And um, this isn't a very good illustration, but it just have to do. A few years ago, when I was a um, terrified curate in Wallington, um, the vicar did a runner. He got another... No, he retired, actually. I knew that was going to happen. And... Um, and so you left with this church. It was a two-year interregnum, but early on I was sort of feeling, um, I don't know how I'm going to do this, Lord. So I decided that, that I would take, it was about 50 of the leaders <coughs> to St. Saviour's Guildford. And there was an associate minister there who did this illustration. Now, you haven't all got candles here. But he lit a candle... And he was much better at lighting candles than me. And I think he, um, that can represent today, it can represent Jesus, it can represent our association with what the Apostle Paul's talking about. But um, the thing about candles is some of them burn quite brightly and some of them don't burn at all. Um, and they need to be lit So the first invitation of the gospel is to have the candle lit. And we've got some folks who are being baptized today. Do you like a candle? Maybe not. Would you like a candle? 
Would someone like to go and give a candle to someone else? Anyone good at lighting candles while I'm doing my talking? Can someone kind of help? You'd like to come and help? Thank you very much. There's quite a few candles in here. So you can light as many as you want and just see if anyone wants any of those candles. The thing about the... Are you all right to do that? It's great. Think about the candles they need to be burning. And with the church, actually, when we gathered in closer together, in unity, it shined a little bit more brightly. And I suppose that was the core. When we're thinking about fellowship, it's folks in together really closely and choosing to be identified. In this metaphor, it's, it's Jesus, the light of the world. And it was quite remarkable. And in a church that's not got a vicar, it was quite important that we're a people of unity. And it was quite a powerful image of all us gathering together. But the call actually wasn't to stay there. We get to come back week in, week out I don't know quite what we do to candles to make them a little bit more long-lasting, but that's what God promises, and he promises to continue the good work in us. But the light of the gospel was never to be kept for ourselves. But I think we need to know that we're called to actively engage. We can't leave it to the vicar who's gone off and been retired, or to any one of us, We need to find ways for us to fully participate in this koinonia, in this fellowship. I'd just like us to pause for a few moments. Um, Does anyone else want a candle? On behalf of the congregation, I've only got a few. But I think God wants to make a few more. Well, they're there anyway. Let's pray. We give thanks that God who's begun a good work in us has not finished with us. We pray that we be given a new or renewed desire for knowing God more deeply. God has started and he hasn't finished. We pray for a renewed love for God and commitment to our fellow Christians. We pray for a renewed confidence in the gospel and its power to bring transformation to people and communities. A renewed witness in our daily lives wherever we find ourselves. Amen.